that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Martin Wiener. I'm a faculty member at George Mason University in the Department of Psychology. I got my PhD in psychology and cognitive neuroscience from the University of Pennsylvania back in 2011. My work focuses on timing and time perception, that is how the brain and the mind understands intervals of time. Uh, and so I, I use this work to understand how we use time in everyday life for things like rhythm and music and navigation and making decisions and perceiving things and all, all kinds of facets that, that time is crucial for. And that's me and that's the kind of kind of work that I do. So happy to be here. Great to hear that. Thank you, first of all, so much for coming on to I'm Immortal. And while we're on the topic of our name, uh, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Immortality, at least to me, means living or existing forever. Um, that mm -hmm. is, you know, there, there is no, you know, there is no end. And to some degree, there is no beginning, right after a while. Um, and so to me, immortality is, is any living being breaking free of that, that sort of life cycle by which you have to you know, be born, exist, and then die, such that you just perpetually exist. So I know we're human. But I feel like we've always asked this, like, because there's this whole field of life extension, all that, which I mean, would you want to ever engage in those sort of therapies or would you maybe want to be one of those beings that is, quote unquote, immortal? I mean, this might presage some of the things I'm going to talk about, I, I could talk about later. I would say um, I would be all for life extension, but probably not for immortality. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned your field of interest. So what, what piqued your interest in this? How did you get in, onto time and space perception? Oh gosh, um, you know it's one of those things that I think I, I'd like to give you a story that that there was some pivotal event in my history that where I looked at the stars and I said it just keeps going and I said I need to figure out why, but and, you know the my life kind of just went from one thing to the next, right? From one opportunity to the next where I thought I was going to be good at something and it turned out I wasn't, um, and then I and then I moved on to the next thing. So, but I. I always did have an interest and a love for psychology and understanding the mind, understanding mental processes, how people think, um, and understanding how others think to a degree. And I, I knew I wanted to do something in that field, but I didn't know what. So I, after college, where I graduated with a, a degree, an undergraduate degree in psychology, I went on to work for a year in a, a mental health hospital. Um, and so that was an opportunity to see patients you know, who are, who are suffering from all kinds of um, psychiatric disorders, from schizophrenia um, to some people with Parkinson's disease, others with, with severe depression. Um, and it was a, a humbling experience, but that's when I realized I, I really just was not good at being a clinician. Um, I probably just did not have the, the knack for it. Um, but I still was interested in, in why, you know, why people were having all these different disorders. So I went on to do a, I get a master's degree in psychology, and it just so happened that the, the there was somebody there who studied timing and time perception. This was at Villanova University in, in Pennsylvania, and it, it just so happened that he needed a graduate research assistant, and I offered to work with him, and we talked, and he said, "Sure, come on in," and I started learning about the work that he was doing, which is about timing in animals, 
And it was, it was very cool. It was fascinating. And I, I did the degree. And when I was done, I said, well, now what? And it, again, it, it just so happened that over at the University of Pennsylvania, at their hospital, uh, there was a, a, a neurologist there who also was looking for someone uh, to come in and, and help him do research. But this was on stroke patients. And he was specifically interested in timing. So how patients with strokes in different parts of the brain got disruptions in their perception of time. And because I had done this work already, I was, you know, sort of a, a, a perfect fit for the position. I came in, I did work there, and that led to me doing a PhD, which led to me doing more work, which, you know, eventually led to me going on and doing several postdocs, um, a, a brief detour where I worked for the federal government, um, and then finally coming back to my position here at, at George Mason University, where I have my own lab. Um, I, I know that I, I found once an old notebook of mine from college where I think I was jotting down ideas. You know, one of those things that you just do where you're just like writing ideas. And I think I, I found a sentence there asking like, you know, where does time come oh from? God. And it was one of those things where I said, there it is. That was it. That was me, you know, knowing that this was where I was going to wind up. But there was a million things written in that book. And so it wasn't the only thing there, but it was something where I said, well, it, you know, I wouldn't have gotten into it if there wasn't some interest in it to begin with, right? Um, and so, you know, I, it's one of those things that I, I grew to love it and grew to become involved in this. Wow, that was quite an origin story. I can't lie. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Okay, well, uh, let's start off with this question. I think this is a great touch or a great starting question. So, as we age, our brain our brain obviously changes. So, how does biological age, aging affect our perception of time? So. It's interesting. There's this assumption out there that well, there's, there's sort of two assumptions with aging. One is is the assumption that as we age, we get slower, um, that, that things tend to slow down. Um, I mean, certainly we see people walking slower and, and moving slower as they get older. Um, but when you examine the evidence, there, there's not that much evidence suggesting that time slows down in, in the moment to moment. Um, there, there, there had been some work suggesting that they were slow, but that, that work was on the basis of the fact that older people have slower reaction times. That is, if you ask them to react to something, they, they do it slower than, than someone who's younger. And the assumption was, well, they can process, they process things slower as well. But again, we're, we're starting to see that's not necessarily true. Um, on the other hand, um, while in the moment they may, their perception of time might be the same, um, if you ask them to think about the ordering of events in their lives, um, what you find is that there is this sense of time speeding up as they get older, of the years just slipping by, of just saying, like, how could I, how could I suddenly be, you know, 50 or 60 or 70? It's like when just the other day I felt like I was 20, you know, or, or something like that. Because it, it does happen. There is this sense of that occurring. Um, and we're not exactly sure why that happens in terms of you know brain anatomy and brain processing um there the general idea has been well when you're 60 years old one year is a much smaller chunk of your life than when you're 20 years old one year has a far more pivotal you know like outsized effect on you um that's true to a, a certain degree because when you're younger like think about how a year can change everything about your life there are so many like like amazing and insane events that could occur in your, you know, teens and twenties that that define who you are. But once you're who you are at that point, once you're, you know, fifty or sixty, 
there's fewer of these events happening that are just going to drastically change everything about you or drastically set you on a totally different path. It does happen, but most commonly things kind of stay the same. Um, and that staying the same when you get older leads to kind of a, a sort of monotony where things just seem to slip by. Um, so there is that, that change there on the grander scale of time for age, but on the shorter time scale, it seems like we, you know, someone who's older can perceive an interval of time just as well as someone who's younger. I kind of want to touch on that because you said when we're younger, like right now, you Sufa and I were in university, so yay, there's a bunch of cool stuff happening every semester. But mm -hmm. for people who I guess have, because you're saying time is based on a sort of proportionality, like time perception based on proportionality plus novel experiences sort of. So if I did want to have, like for people who do have new and fun experiences throughout their 30s, 40s, not that, not that they're boring, but you know, they continue, mm -hmm. would they experience, would they still give the same argument that time is slipping away? Or would they usually say that, no, I'm still like, it feels like, like I guess, I don't know, that, that time is just as slow as they were, as it is when they were younger, I guess. Yeah, um, well, I guess, I don't know if this will answer that question, but um, the, the, the experience of time to, to a very large degree is, is tied to novelty um, and, and the novelty and newness of events. Um, so you can probably imagine or, you know, like, like if you think back to when you first started college, say, and let's say if it was like a, a monumental event in your life of like, now I'm here in college, like those first few weeks are probably solidified in your mind but they probably, you know, fill a bigger chunk of your memory than, say, what happened, you know, in, you know, the most recent two I don't weeks remember. of your life, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, there, there is this thing, and, and it's funny because this is something that, that people in my field are studying right now in the context of COVID um, and in the context of mm. pandemics, of, of people being, uh, having, you know, a warped sense of time under lockdown, right? Um, because it's one of those things that, um, you know, when we, when we have more new novel experiences, looking back, our memory of those events, they seem to last longer than they actually were. Um, and paradoxically though, in the moment, um, it feels like they flew by. So if you're having a, a fun, exciting time, if a lot of great stuff is happening, like all of a sudden it's it's 3 a.m. How did that, you know, that time slip by? Oh man, it's like we were having so much fun. We didn't even notice that like all this this, this time was gone. Um, and yet if you think back to it, there's so many things that occur, you'd overestimate how long you were doing that thing for. Um, so the, the in the moment experience of it might feel like it flew by, but the retrospective memory of it um, is stretched out to be longer than it actually was. Mm. Oh. oh, actually... Okay, sorry, Sufa, I'm gonna I'm gonna go again. Right. But you talked about time estimation, and I was when we we're mm -hmm. talking about questions. One of the things we we're talking about was if you're in a blank room, right, and you just someone told mm -hmm. you, okay, leave when a minute has passed, you can do a pretty good job at it. But if someone said an hour, a day, a month, then you ended up doing quite poorly. I think there were some experiments like with people underground, and their their judgment mm -hmm. time was even the time of day was off. Is there a reason mm -hmm. why we're so bad at judging like long term time versus short term time? Potentially, so with with isolation experiments, um, you know, at least if you lose, say, the light 
cycle. Like, like you no longer know day from night, there is this free running of circadian rhythms that can occur where you start, the, you, you still sleep and wake for the same amount of time, but when you go to sleep and when you wake up starts to slowly shift. Um, so now you're every, every day, you know, it's like you're falling asleep a little bit later and you're waking up a little bit later until if you go long enough, you know, you're, you're basically sleeping during what is actually day and awake during what is actually night because you no longer have these cues. Um, that, I mean, that's our, you know, our general method in, you know, in terms of our, our body awareness of telling us like, okay, it's time for me to sleep. It must've been a day now. Um, and so those things rely on these external cues for us to be able to tell us like, okay, it's like now it's time for us to wake up or now it's time for us to go to sleep. And as far as why we might be bad at those things in terms of estimating an hour or, you know, estimating a, a much longer time scale is that, um, you know, the brain has sort of adapted to be able to time things in this immediate moment. You know, we're, we're very, very good at timing a few seconds. We're very, very good at timing a few minutes even. Um, but one, you know, and once you start kind of extending that out, um, the brain loses these, you know, the the same the method that it was using before for keeping track of that time. So if let let's imagine you're just trying to count seconds, mm -hmm. right? And you're just going one, two, right. three, four. That that strategy will work just fine for a short interval of time. But if you need to count in order to tell yourself what an hour is up, it's 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 just not going. It's just going to fail you um, because you won't be able to maintain it. And it's the same thing in in terms of the brain that. The brain starts moving on to other things. It starts attending to other things. It starts turning inwards, and you lose track of all the cues that are necessary for you to say, "Okay, this this amount of time has has passed." Um, and so, in fact, though, in, in order for you to to actually know when an hour is up without a clock, is your your mind has to kind of retrieve other memories of things that you were told lasted an hour and said, well, this is kind of the same as this other thing that I knew was an hour. Um, so it, it feels like that. So it must be an hour. You know, it's like this is seems similar to that. Um, and in, actually, you know, in terms of measuring an hour, we're, we're better at measuring an hour than you'd think. Um, really? We're actually, yeah, we're, we're actually pretty good at being able to measure when an hour has got like even, oh, even not like a me half then. hour to an hour. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if we're tasked to do right, it, okay. like if we're told, like, like if you are told, like, you have one hour for this mm -hmm. thing to be done, you know, it's like, tell me when you think it's up. Um, I mean, most people will undershoot it of, of when the hour is, but they'll get it fairly, fairly close. Um, it's, it's only when, you know, you start to get these much longer times. It's like, tell me when four hours is up. Well, now I've just, I've lost everything. You know, it's like it, that, that becomes far more difficult to, to mm -hmm. indicate. Okay. I know we just touched on this, so I'm going to segue here. Um, so you mentioned how attention and paying attention to how much time passing is important. So why is it that attention is so closely tied with time perception and say somebody has attentional de deficit or some condition, what's the case for them? Yeah. So there was a, um, I'm going to go big before I go small on, on that answer. Um, and so there, there was a, a mathematical psychologist named John Gibbon, um, who he, he, back in the seventies made some of the first or they weren't the first, but they were some of the most pivotal models of, of timing and time perception. And it wasn't until a little while later that he, he has this quote where he said, um, the reason why he was so interested in time is he said, time is the primordial context. And what he means by what meant by that is time was the first thing that mattered to us as as living organisms. That it was, it was the very first thing we had to figure out, you know, like, 
in order for me to get energy. I need to know when the sun is up in order for me to go up there and, and get energy. And I need to know it's night in order to kind of, you know, conserve energy. Um, so I need to figure that out. Okay, I've, I figured that out. Now it's like I need to, you know, hunt. Well, I need to find, figure out how to be quick and catch something. Okay, well, I'm prey. I need to figure out how to run away from it. Well, we're going to keep getting better and better at each of those things. And, and timing becomes more and more and more important. Um, he said, you know, evolution favored organisms that could predict things rather than react to them. You know, if we were only reacting to something eating us, we would be eaten. But if we could predict when something was going to come and attack us, we could get away from it. So that's the, the kind of big part. And so in terms of the question of attention, um, what we have found through a lot of this, this experimental psychology work is that um, the more attention you pay to time, the longer it gets. Okay. So if I'm asking you to time an interval and tell me how long it is, and you're focusing all your attention on this interval, like if I say, you know, I'm going to flash a light at you and you tell me how long it is, if you focus all your attention on that light, um, it's the more attention you focus on it, the longer that light will seem to be on for. Um, but if you start diverting your attention away, if you start kind of thinking about something else or looking at something else or, you know, whatever, um, the shorter that interval will become. Um, and this is where kind of we get those those sayings, a watch pot never boils or time flies when you're having fun, uh, because in the watch pot example, you are focused entirely on time. And the idea, again, is that time is that pr primordial context, because it's that one thing that we focus on there of saying how much time has passed. And, you know, when you focus on it, it gets longer. Um, but if you're distracted away from it, it gets shorter. Um, and for someone who has ADHD, um, what we found is that people who cannot maintain attention to time on things, those time intervals, you know, obviously all seem to become shortened. So if I give someone with ADHD, I ask them to time a five second stimulus, like tell me when five seconds is up, you know, they're going to, um, you know, time it and then say, oh, that was three seconds because they were focused. They, they couldn't maintain their attention on, on this particular thing. Um, and so that's, you know, sort of the, the connection there. And that's how attention gets folded into this in terms mm -hmm. of timing. Oh, I can I can go ahead with the next question. Oh, I mean, I, I can ask. You know, you go first. Uh, I asked like three follow-ups last time. So um, this actually is a, a question more related to getting older. So you mentioned time slipping, and how as you get older, time like you know longer pieces of time feel shorter. So say somebody were to live to a more absurd age, such as five hundred, would <laughs> would like a week seem like a second to them, like in terms of memory? Oh, huh. Uh, yeah. So it's funny you. Um, to some degree, it's, it's ad absurdum, right? It's like, oh, well, obviously, it's like if someone is living for so much longer and they have so much time, then, you know, at that point, the passing of time must seem to go like, like by in the blink of an eye, right? You know, it's like, because what does it matter to them? Um, you're, you're kind of getting at this geological time scale thing, right? Like this whole idea that you have like an ancient organism that's like so, so old and so wise, like a, like a, like a god, for example. And to it, like, you know, the actions of mortals seem like the actions of, of like mere ants where centuries are passing by in seconds mm -hmm. to this being. Um, I mean, that, you know, that, that works and all when you're, you know, coming up with fantastic beings. But I think, you know, we, we cannot escape biology mm. <laughs> to some degree and so i think if we were to artificially take a human and find a way to ex expand its lifespan even to some you know to a long amount like 500 years i don't think you would get time like 
quite going so quickly um, in that case. Um, I think you might just wind up reaching like, yeah, thing, things just fly by, but they might be like, but what does it matter? You know, it's like, what is, you know, it's like, okay, a week has gone by, oh, whatever, there'll be mm. another week, you know, I can, I can focus on things then or do what I need to do then. So almost like a loop of procrastination to a certain degree. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Okay, Marvin, you can oh, go ahead here. Okay. Yeah, I want to ask because earlier we talked about how there's two factors. One of them was um, novel events being linked to your perception of time. So say you were like Zufo's scenario of 500 years, maybe even a thousand, right? I don't know if there's, first of all, it kind of relates to, is there a limit to your memory? Because I was thinking if there is a limit, then you would only be able to keep so many events in your head, right? And that's how you perceive time. And if time goes on and you can only still perceive a finite number of events, then wouldn't your perception change? Or like, how do we deal with that sort of problem? Yeah, again, that's, we don't really know, right? I mean, that, that's a great question. Certainly, you can say that there must be a finite limit to the number of memories that we can hold. That has to be true. You could imagine, though, that after a while, the brain would simply start to, to lose memories like lose older memories that are no longer relevant or no longer necessary and just replace them with additional memories. And so you could imagine perhaps a being that's, you know, 500 years old that no longer remembers what it was like to be 10 or 20, or perhaps just has like a few select choice memories of being 10, 20, and then a few select memories of being 30 and 40, and then maybe more memories than closer to whatever is the more relevant memories for it. On the other hand, it might not be the case. Memory is still one of those things that we have a difficult time untangling in the brain. Certain types of memories are easy for us to study. For example, mem the memory of locations, uh, for example, of like where was something, like where was this or where was that. Studying memories of events though in the brain, that's harder. That, that, that is still something to this day that we don't really have a very good handle on, on where these memories are stored. And where is likely the wrong question. It's more a matter of how these memories are stored. Um, simply because we modern neuroscience is pushing us to this network view of the brain, where you can say, well, when a particular memory is instantiated, the brain activates itself in a particular pattern. Okay, so you can imagine, okay, I've got, you know, it's like these, these you know, 50 nodes activate in a very particular pattern, you know, a very particular way. And, you know, we think of the hippocampus as the key to saying, okay, activate pattern, you know, 5037, that's the memory of when I was eight, you know, and I, you know, tripped, you know, it's like, while well, I was running too fast or something like that. Okay, now switch these weights. Now it's this other memory, for example. And if that's the case, if it's this network that's just changing its configuration, you could imagine a system that could store, you know, memories for hundreds of years because it's just new configurations that the brain has to be able to achieve. And as long as the brain retains, you know, the, the, the weights of saying, okay, you know, these are the weights of, for this particular memory and these are the weights for that memory, then I should have, you know, a, a far greater amount of storage than what we even have in our lifetimes. I mean, that's how you have, you, we, there are those, you know, reports of people with eidetic memories People who have these perfect memories for all kinds of events and sort of super mnemonics, right? Their brains are no different necessarily than ours. If you examine their neuroanatomy, it's like you don't find like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like this brain looks so different. Like it might, the, the hippocampus might be bigger perhaps, um, but otherwise it's like they, they don't really suffer many, um, you know, losses. Um, although that could be argued against that there are some people who claim having eidetic memory is a curse rather than a gift. You know, I can like, imagine, right? Yeah, <laughs> but that at least proves to us that you could have a person who lives for you know a very long time span and doesn't suffer any any problem in being able to remember something.
oh, okay, wait. So I had a question because we're talking about the brain. And only in like the past few years, my frontal lobe has developed sufficiently where, yeah, I realize I'm not in- immortal or invincible at age like 18 to 20 or whatever. And start planning like less current satisfaction. Like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, go watch Netflix now because I need to do my project. You start planning more long term, right? Sure. So like now I'm like, okay, what am I doing once I graduate, right? Mm-hmm. Possibly start investing because apparently 10 years down the line, it'll make me some money. Mm-hmm. So living longer and longer, do you anticipate people would, I guess plan even longer term like would they have like a 50-year plan a 100-year plan what do you think i mean they they could um or rather they should (laughs) should okay you know people are people like we we are creatures of the moment i mean achieving the lifespans that we have like on a longer scale really is one of the great success stories of modern medicine and modern civilization right that we all you know have the opportunity to live as long as we do and that you know lifespans you know regardless are still increasing at this point i think people still you know are living longer than they have at any other point in in history and given that people should plan ahead plan long term but by and large people don't people are are impulsive people are far more engaged in in things of the moment um there, for example, there's a, a, a basic psychology experiment called temporal discounting, right? And so temporal discounting works like this. Um, if I could give you um, uh, $5 right now, or oh, yeah, you know, this $5 right now or $50 <laughs> tomorrow, you know, which would you pick, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you'd say $50. And I said, okay, $5 right now or $50 next week. You'd probably say $50. Okay, $5 right now or $50 a year from now. Well, you'd probably be like, oh, you know, that's a while to wait just for $50. I'll take the $5. And then if you say $5 right now or $50 10 years from now, you'll say, just give me the, give me the $5 right now. Mm-hmm. And the thing of it is that like, you should always pick the bigger amount from a, an economic standpoint. The, the bigger amount is better unless the smaller amount is something that you could invest to grow, to, yeah, to exceed say, that. Yeah, and if you can invest Right, it, you know, yeah. but you know, aside from that particular example, it's like you should generally always pick the bigger one. These timescales I'm saying are like excessive, but you find people discount the larger reward at fairly small intervals. And it you know, varies from person to person. Some people just say like, nah, a week's too long. Give me the smaller one. Or we see some cases where, where people discount an hour or something like that, where they just say, no, I, I want this. I'll take the smaller reward now in lieu of getting the bigger reward later because I want it now. And I think people are impulsive there. Even if they live for long lifespans, they probably would still be creatures of the moment mm-hmm. um, because that's how we, you know, developed. That's how we evolved. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was this, this is a little bit like a sidetrack in terms of a, a different realm of psychology, but I figured I'd ask because I remember hearing on this other podcast, there's this like marshmallow test for kids, right? You mm-hmm. know, you, one marshmallow mm-hmm. now, two marshmallows right. later. And then they linked it to future success. What I, I forget how they gauged success, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know if there's any evidence like, oh, do people who like who, who are more willing to take $50 a week later or two weeks later, a month later, if there's any evidence that they are better off or better equipped for future something in some way? I mean, certainly there's, I think there is work linking temporal discounting like, like you're describing to different uh, personality traits. So, so the one that, that tracks most closely to that, unsurprisingly, is impulsivity. So there are impulsivity question mark, uh, questionnaires and people who score higher in impulsivity are far more likely to take the smaller reward sooner. Um, whereas people who score lower on impulsivity are much more likely to take that longer later reward. That, that I think is by far the biggest, strongest effect. In terms of, you know, you can then ask yourself, well, you know, 
are those people better off who are less impulsive um, overall? Or like, so for example, I remember anecdotal reports of like, well, who are the, the people that are really impulsive? And I remember talking to someone and saying like, oh, well, this one person, he was a, you know, sky, professional skydiving coach. It's like this other one, it's like, oh, he was always doing extreme sports. You know, this other one, and he was, you know, always like, you know, it's like engaging in risky behavior. You know, these are the different traits that they have. And so you can say, well, are, are those people worse off because they're engaging in these things? You know, it's like, or is it just that's that's who they are and they're doing what they enjoy. But part of that is is from this uh, impulsivity that they have to engage in these behaviors. So I don't know that we have something quite like the marshmallow test here in terms of saying that these people are better off. And I, I mean, the marshmallow test itself has some controversy back and forth as to, as to whether or not it actually exists. Um, or, I mean, whether or not the effects actually track with later success or with, you know, delinquent behavior, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's an open question, I think. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump the ship here a little bit. This is a question we have in here that I personally find pretty interesting. So typically people tend to have a fear of death. It's very common to have a fear of death, but people can also have a fear of living forever, the infinite. So how can both of these exist in like a lifetime? Like, is it not a contradiction for somebody who's immortal? They could possibly have the both. You're saying, is it a contradiction for someone to both fear death and immortality at the same time? Yeah, or? essentially. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, is, is it okay for me to to curse on this podcast or is it, or, or not? Uh, yeah, shouldn't be a problem I mean, as long as you're okay with it. I mean, it. <laughs> so, so a fear of death and a fear of immortality is basically you're, you're fucked one way or the other, right? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, like, like in one case you, you die and that's it and there's nothing and that's scary and that that's frightening. And I don't want to, you know, face that. Mm -hmm. um, in another sense, if you take immortality to its, to its extreme, you say, I'm just going to keep on existing and existing and existing and existing and nothing will ever end. It will never stop. I will never stop existing. And especially if you're miserable in your existence, it's like you reach this point of like saying like, that doesn't sound very great either. And there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, let's imagine like pure immortality. Like you cannot, you cannot die. You simply, you simply will not die. Right? Like the 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 earth could crumble behind you and you could be floating still in space and you just would not die mm -hmm. you know it's like that i i know is like again like a just as frightening prospect right it's like just this continued endless existence and i think either way someone would find both of those things kind of a, a type of, of fear um i mean this connects also to you know like people who might have a fear of the of, of infinity um could have a fear of an afterlife even of being like, well, I'm afraid of dying and going to an afterlife where I'm just existing forever. Like, I remember, you know, it's like, what if there was, say, like an afterlife that whatever, what if there was a hell where you were just placed in a blank room and that was it? And you were told, this is it. You're going to be here forever. Bye. I'm the last person you're ever going to see. It's never going to end. And that's it. And you're just now in this room. There's no doors. There's no windows. It's just a blank room, you know, an, an, an oubliette of, of, you know, darkness. And that's terrifying to me, right? And, and again, it's terrifying under the idea that it does not end, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, it's also terrifying because we are social creatures where we have to be interacting with other people, um, you know, to some degree in order to, to maintain our, our mental health, yeah. right? Um, and so again, that, the, the, that's why isolation is a type of torture 
Um, that's why it's like, you know, we need others one way or another to be around us, you know, in order to survive. Mm. So if we have like life extension therapy, we have to remember everyone should get it, not just one person. Otherwise that person will have that conundrum thousands of years later. It's like, do I die? Do I keep going? There's no one around. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, to some degree, yes. You know. So Martin, can the mind handle living for extended lifespans or even forever? Is it even possible? So it, this is one of those questions that it, it's sort of hard to answer. Certainly, we've seen that that as life has extended, people are are able to exist and behave. You know, it's like we have people living up to 120, and and you know, even though there may be some issues, they still are themselves. You know, it's like you can still have a conversation with someone who's 120. Um, but in terms of living to 220 or 520. Um, you know, it's one of those open questions, especially if we could find a way to preserve the body so that you could still have a, you know, like, like relatively healthy self, healthy body, um, say, you know, be sort of stuck as you are, um, but have a mind that exists for a much longer period of time. Um, and to answer those things, it's funny because, you know, science, we can't, we can't really answer that. Um, and it's sort of a, you know an ethical and moral question of should a person even be allowed to live that long if if they were given the ability to? Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think everybody wants life extension of some form or another. It's like, like it is something that's actually being studied, and they, there are groups out there that want to find a way. We, we have been able to extend the lives of uh, smaller organisms like mice um, and, and other animals to you know longer periods of time. And so if you could scale that up to humans and expand their lives, well, it's like, who should be the first one to get it? Like how, you know, it's like, like, would you, should you wait 200 years to see if it worked and to see what this person was like? You know, what, what is a clinical trial like for, you know, a life extension drug? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah. do we say, hey, everybody, there's going to be this life extension drug. We'll let you know if it works in, in two centuries. Oh, wow. And if it does, those, <laughs> your grandchildren will, might be able to take it. You know, it's like, well, you know, I don't know if that's that's what we want. But um, there have been, of course, um, a lot of people who have speculated on this, and that gets into the realm of, of science fiction, you know, and, and fantasy, where you can see there, there's lots of work out there that talks about people living for long periods of time, um, or certainly people living for, for, you know, infinite periods of time. And it's funny because I've, you know, I'm not an, an expert in, in science fiction or, or fantasy. I've, I've read my fair share, but at least from what I've seen, um, you know, it, they fall into two categories where you've got um, dystopian immortality and utopian immortality um, on either side. And dystopian immortality is that, that type I talk about where people who live longer than they're supposed to and find the experience uh, to be sort of one of misery and, and one of being kind of stretched out, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a letter that, that J.R. Tolkien wrote to somebody where he was explaining why in The Lord of the Rings, you know, someone getting the ring um, led to unnaturalness in them. And like, like Gollum living for centuries and centuries or Bilbo being extended out, as he used the you know, metaphor saying, I feel like butter spread out over too much bread. And he said, the idea is that everything has a set lifespan. It's the lifespan it's supposed to live. And when you unnaturally stretch that out, it's this sense of taking what was supposed to occur the right way and making it occur the wrong way. Like, like hmm. the mind tries to adapt to this thing that it's not supposed to be doing. Um, and so there are these dystopian Im- immortals um, that, that get affected by it in a negative way where they, they 
you know, get filled with apathy. They get filled with like an inability to experience pleasure. It's like, that's where we get bad guys. You know, it's like in a lot of like, you know, comic books and, and movies and stuff like that. Like I've just been existing for so long and now I torture, you know, it's like you mortals. It's like, it's like, because like, you know, it's like, this is, this is who I am and I can't relate to anyone anymore. But on the other side, you've then got, you know, utopian immortality, which are other sci-fi stories of people given, you know, life enhancing drugs that now find themselves with, you know, access to great wisdom. You know, it's like great, greater awareness of who they are. And, you know, this is, this is something Marvin that you kind of mentioned of, well, if you're going to live longer, shouldn't you look further ahead? Um, and it's funny because I've read some books of people like you know, stories where someone gets a life enhancing treatment and then they're like, now I know, you know, that, that, you know, my life's going to go on for several hundred years, you know, I don't have to rush anymore. You know, it's like, no, I don't have to, you know, it's like, I, you know, I stopped rushing and everything. I started taking my time in things. I started really, you know, stopping to enjoy things in, in the present moment because I didn't feel this pressure to get things done and to like achieve things. And so you lead to this like utopia of people experiencing longer lives, leading them overall being happier and, and more fulfilled. Um, and, and which one of those things would happen, we don't know, but, you know, to some degree, it probably depends on the individual. Um, in that there's probably some people who would benefit in some ways. Um, but what's interesting about these, these sci-fi and fantasy stories is that it, it seems to happen automatically as a byproduct of living longer. Like if you're, if, if you're granted long life, it, it's going to corrupt you. It's like, you know, like you're, that, that's just something that's going to happen in the dystopian versions. Whereas in the utopian versions, if you're granted long life, it's just something that's going to make you better. Like yeah. there's no way around, there, you know, around it. You're just going to become better as a result. Um, mm -hmm. And I think those are, you know, caricatures, you know, it's like of, of you know, individuals, whereas what would really happen probably would differ from, from person to person. Wow. It makes me really question yeah. if I want that therapy because we were talking, I guess this is a more modern day example, but I feel like everyone's always complaining like there's not enough time. There's not enough time. I'm too busy. Mm -hmm. right. But once you give them too much time, they're just unproductive, right? Are we, like, are right. we going to have a society right. where everyone's just like, eh, next century, right? Yeah. Like, later. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I'll do it later. Right. Yeah. Everybody starts pushing everything right. off. Yeah. You mm -hmm. can imagine it going in that, that direction, right? That everybody, everything just leads to a kind of apathy, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, jumping to our question, because I we you mentioned um, you do not just time perception, but space as well. And I'm going to read this exactly how it's worded because I love this. So physics, at least they talk about space and time often being intermingled, but we're talking about psychology and neuroscience here. So is there any sort of connection between the two? Yes. Um, it's, it is not studied as much. Um, I mean, that, you know, it's not studied as much as one of the dimensions individually. Okay. People tend to study space or they tend to study time. Uh, but there's not as many people who study space-time, you know, that is, that is how you experience um, both of these dimensions, right? And that's more for um, historical reasons than anything else, that, that some people just are, are studying navigation of animals in a maze, um, and others are just kind of, you know, training animals to uh, judge an interval of time in order to get a reward. Um, and those, those um, kind of, you know, just sort of just sort of lead to different different um, literatures, but there are examples of people studying space and time leading to some interesting results. So, um, to to my mind, the most interesting one was was um, this is this is a, a paper that came out in Science about forty years ago, back in nineteen eighty one, um, and it was one of these the papers that 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 
was interesting, but not many people cite it and it's sort of fallen out of out of favor. But it's one of these weird papers. So it was by a guy named Alton DeLong um, at the University of Tennessee. He was an, he was an architect there, um, the School of Architecture. I don't know why he did this study, but he did the study where he invited people into a room to play with little scale model environments. Um, like here's a diorama like of, of a room and like in this diorama there's like a whole setup or something like that and he asked them to imagine they were in that room like 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 imagine you're you're in it and just go ahead you know it's like and 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 play there and like play in the little little room um, and he gave brought different people in and made them play with different dioramas of different sizes so some people got a really tiny little room of a diorama other people got a bigger diorama other people got like a very big diorama and he play with them, you know, for different sizes. Um, and he would let them play with that and, and say, imagine you were in there. And then he would leave. Um, he would leave for different intervals of time and then come back and ask them how long they'd been playing in this diorama for. And what he found is that people's reports of time um, became warped to the size of the environment they were playing in. Where if people were playing in a like really, really, really tiny environment, um, they felt that a very short amount of time had passed by. Oh. Um, so, like, like, and the reports varied widely, but they were consistent. So he, you know, at the most extreme, he, you know, let a person play in a tiny little environment, and he came back thirty minutes later and said, "How long has gone by?" And the person said, five minutes." You know, um, whereas the as the you know the environments got bigger and bigger and bigger, the amount of time got longer and longer and longer and longer. Um, but they were always shorter than the actual amount of time that people were were in there, um, and he came up with he called this um, phenomenological space time, and the idea was saying that our sense of time is warped to the environment that we're in. Okay, that is like the boundaries of the environment change our sense of time while we're in that environment, um, and and he he went from there to kind of say like whether you're if you're in a tiny cramped room you're going to have a different perception of time than if you're in a wide open space like if you're in like a like a you know like arena or an, an airplane hangar or something like that um, and it's funny because he then wound up you know suggesting that um, it's also in relation to the size of the observer so if you were to be a giant for example you know it's like in like you know it's like a, a like a giant person in a you know it's like re relatively smaller environment um your time would wind up going in the opposite direction there okay where your time your time would wind up becoming longer this is like i said of like people become ants and so for them time would be going faster but for you time would be going slower and so you know it's like those people would be like it's like you know it's like, like, like you'd have a, a very different perception of events passing by compared to the little people all around you sort of the you know the little tiny individuals um and there, there was actually some work that replicated this effect um, like a couple times in the 80s, and then no one ever followed up on it after that. It kind of just became this footnote. Um, there were some studies that did follow up in architecture, actually, for designing spaces, of, you know, because this guy was you know, from an architect school. And so some people said, you need to keep in mind people's sense of time when you're designing an environment, like when you're designing a space for people to walk around in, that when you have more narrow corridors and more, you know, it's like, you know, narrow worn like environments that's going to change people's sense of time in them and, and it might stress them out um, mm. likewise if you have grander wide open vistas people get this you know sense of awe there and their sense of time will become expanded in those particular places um, and so it, it was it was this wild thing and 
again, not many people have followed up on it, but the, it does suggest that our sense of time and our sense of space are linked to some degree. Um, that is, you know, uh, you know we, we use time when navigating just as we use space when navigating um, in terms of saying like, well, how you know, far am I, does it take for me to get from here to there? Um, and it's funny because, yeah, again, this is, this is all anecdotes because I, there, there's not been a lot of work on this and we're starting to get into this work. Um, but I, I know that I have seen a difference of people who live in rural environments, their perception of how long it takes to get from like point A to point B to point C and what is considered a long time, you know, or a long distance versus people who live in urban dense environments of saying like, oh, I've got to get from here to there. So um, I, I know that, that you, if you live, say, in a very dense environment, say you're in downtown Toronto and it's kind of like, oh, we got to, to get over here to the other side of the city. You know, it's like, like, oh, I got it. Like, let's see if I can do a local reference. I got to get to Mississauga, um, you know, from Toronto. And it's like, well, I don't want to go all the way over there. It's going to take me mm -hmm. for, you know, forever to get there. But if you looked at the actual distance, it's probably not that far. You know, versus somebody, say, who lives like way out um, in Alberta or something like that, who's kind of like, oh, that place? Yeah, it's right over there, just 50 miles away. What? Let's go. It's right over there. Mm -hmm. um, like for them, they, you know, th they might have a different sense of it. You know, it's like simply because their experiences of, of the time intervals for those things has warped their sense of the space, just as, you know, the space itself can warp their sense of, of the time that it takes to get from one thing to another. Because you might say, oh, 50 miles, that's going to take forever. I don't want to sit in the car for 50 miles while we go like just down the road for this thing. Um, whereas for them, traveling to Mississauga might, with you might be just a very simple trip. Like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. Why did you get you know so worked up about it? Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I've heard a lot of those examples, uh, specifically with people in the UK mentioning how, oh, I would never travel 200 kilometers to right. another country to attend a concert. But in the US, oh, you know, eight hour drive for the concert, trip, not yeah. a big deal. There, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, there, there was one yeah, time I remember, it was actually, a Canada story was I was up in um, Montreal, um, also, also going to a show. And uh, there was a, a person there we were hanging out with and he was from the UK. And mm -hmm. we were done, we were saying, okay, well, we're gonna, we're gonna drive back tomorrow. He's like, oh, where are you going? It's like, oh, it's like we were actually going to Boston. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and he was like, how long is it going to take you to get there? And it's like, it's going to take us eight hours. And he was like, eight hours. And, and I remember he he seemed concerned for us. He was like, yeah. do you need anything? Is there anything that I that, that you need in order to like make the trip okay? Like, are you guys going to be all right? And yeah. We were like, yeah, we're going to be fine. It's 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 not that bad, you know. Mm -hmm. But for him, like the idea of traveling anywhere like by car for eight hours was just this this like ordeal. You know this odyssey of a journey whereas for us it was like oh no no big deal yeah so uh one more question related to time perceptions a lot of people uh, especially students when the summer comes and you have nothing to do you get bored very quickly mm -hmm. so how exactly is boredom related to time perception and additionally would boredom change as we you know live longer yeah so again this is that time is the primordial context mm -hmm. thing that i was talking about that um it's the primordial context in the sense that um, and this is the insidious nature of it, when you don't have anything else left to attend to, like if you just don't have anything else to look at, all you have left is time. Like all you have left to attend to is time. And remember, the more you attend to time, the longer it becomes. Absolutely. So it gets, it gets worse and worse. So if you like lose things to look at and lose things to focus on, 
you just come right back to the passage of time, which makes it go slower. And then you focus more on it, which makes it go slower and it's slower and slower mm. and slower. Um, and to some degree that that's boredom. Um, that is like you becoming bored with the input that you're getting of just, I don't want to attend to this stuff anymore. What's left. And then, you know, even if you don't want to attend, you know, turn yourself inward to your own thoughts, you don't even want to like daydream. It's like, you just, get tired of that you just start attending to time without even realizing it you are attending to time and just how gosh this is taking forever um it's like if you're on a long plane flight you know it's like the joke is like like if you're if you're taking like a 12-hour plane flight it's like you watch a movie and then you watch another movie and then you still have seven hours up in the plane flight and it's like well what do i do now and it's like it's like that's why you know, it's like it can just become you know agony after all because all you're thinking about is the passage of time yeah. um whereas i remember I remember the first time I flew on a on a plane where I was with a friend talking with them the whole time on the flight. Super spy. And suddenly they were like, "Oh, we're landing now." And I'm like, "Oh, we are." It's like because I was distracted away from the passage of time. I wasn't focused on it anymore. It seemed to go by really quick. Um, so and that is something that we are seeing in these studies of COVID and lockdown where there there are these large scale studies in the UK, um, in Brazil, in in, in Japan showing that, that people are experiencing a, a slowing down of time uh, in lockdown where things are slowing, slowing down in the sense that things are becoming stretched out. And it's related to this sense of boredom of, well, I've watched all my Netflix shows mm. now and I've you know binge watched all the things I want to do. I've crocheted all the things I needed to crochet, cooked all the things I needed to cook. What's left? Well, that's it. Now I'm just thinking about the fact that I'm still here and nothing is new anymore and I'm just getting bored with it and time is stretching out and it feels like this is taking forever. Yeah. There was this, this joke, I remember when the pandemic first started, that March was endless, that it was an endless March because that was the first month of the pandemic and we were so new to being stuck where we were that it just seemed to drag on forever. So. Wow. So a way you could technically, ex well, not extend your time, but feel like time is going like be slower it's like if you're in a big blank mansion in the middle of nowhere during a global pandemic and you're extremely bored and you have no netflix that seems like a pretty good way <laughs> to maximize your misery here at least yeah yeah exactly yeah if you're if you're put into this this space where, where just nothing is exciting where everything is old nothing is new nothing is is exciting you know we we crave novelty and if you take that away um it just leads to boredom Okay, well, you want me to wrap? Okay, sure. I have one sort of wrap-up question, and we've talked about a lot of different things today. Um, but if there's one thing you have, what you want listeners to take away from today, regards to time perception, like with regards to, I guess, life extension, possibly, um, is there sort of yeah, one thing you really want to tell them to hone in on? If there's one lesson that that we've learned from from timing and from the things that I've I've talked about, it's that time flies when you're having fun. The brain seeks and craves novelty. Um, it does not crave a dark room where, where nothing happens, mm. even though that's, that's the safer alternative. Um, we, we go out, we experience things. Um, and whether we are you know, living for uh, 200 years or, or you know, 50 years, um, experiencing more things, experiencing more novel events, um, doing more, like, you know, it's like involving yourself in more things, um, is a way to enrich your life and even make it seem to last longer uh, in the, the time that you have um, than it actually is. So, you know, you could live for 50 years and fill up those 50 years with a ton of experiences or live for 500 years and have nothing in it. 
um, and and wind up with like an, an equivalence in terms of the memories that you have and the lived experience between those two. Um, and if I had my choice, I mean, I think I would choose again to have the experience of a life that was more full rather than a life that was more empty. Um, mm -hmm. You know, time may be the primordial context, but it's not a fun place to, to, to be, you know, to just focus on time endlessly. Um, so mm -hmm. so the, the point is for us to get away from that and experience more novelty um, as a way of um, kind of escaping the trap of time to some degree. Wow. You know, just I realized the phrase the experience of a lifetime has so much of this is way different meaning now after having this interview. So let's wrap it up with for all of the audience listening in, where can they find more about your work, support it? Or if they're a university student, how can they get involved in this field? So um, if they want to know more about me, um, I, I have a, a website uh, up through George Mason University. So you can uh, Google my name and then you, you should that should take you to my mm -hmm. uh, web page at George Mason. Um, my, my lab has its own website. Um, so we're the Star Lab, so space time action representation. Um, so you can you know Google that and at George Mason University. In terms of um, getting involved in this work, um, you know cognitive neuroscience that's that's my area is a, a growing field. There's many cognitive neuroscientists at most research universities and and even smaller universities. If you're interested in this, I encourage you to reach out to people at your local university who are, are doing exciting and interesting things in this space um, and, and chatting with them and, and seeing if, if there are opportunities there for doing research. I mean, it, we are always looking for people who are interested in this field and want to learn more and want to involve themselves in, in research. So Absolutely, great. So for all of you guys listening, links to Martin's lab as well as his university website will be below. With that all wrapped up, thank you so much for coming on to our show and being interviewed. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Sifal and Marvin. This, is, this has been fantastic. <laughs> I really appreciate you guys reaching out. Thanks.